The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. Well, McDermott, the movie editor with Hot Press and advice columnist with the Irish Times, is with us, as is Michael Clifford, special correspondent with the Irish Examiner, to talk about the week trending, the stories of the week. And Mick, let's start with the apparently the word of the year. And it is... Uh, permacrisis. You don't sound too enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I thought we were going somewhere else. Permacrisis, I think, is Just the word. I thought I'd throw you a little bit to yeah. start. The show yes. is in a state of permacrisis from the start. No. <laughs> it is with all the things we've been talking yeah, about per- for the last per- few per- years. Per- isn't it? Permacrisis, the word of the year. It's describing the feeling of living through a period of war, inflation, and political instability. That's been chosen as Collins's dictionary word of the year. And I suppose it's hard to get away from that because. It's difficult in the current environment to escape the old bit of doom and gloom, you know. I also expect I expect to see the word permacrisis as the single word single word Tinder profile for many an Irish person for the next while. I think people are going to adopt it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a sta- it's a political word, it's a social word, but also I think people are going to feel it per- personally oh, yeah. on a personal level that kind of sense of pressure trying to keep up with everything that's going on in the world. The sense of never being able to relax the constant sense of anxiety. So I think the whole point of um this is an annual thing by Collins dictionary to add 10 words to the dictionary every year too look at our evolving language and our evolving reality and reflect our reality through these words. And so I think, unfortunately, it does feel incredibly thematic, politically, socially and personally. I suppose mean, when you think of climate crisis added to it as well, that is a perma crisis as well. Yes, Matt, we don't want to be thinking of the whole thing at one time. I mean, <laughs> but, but we would rather right. talk about other things. No, though, no, I, I, look, you're absolutely right. But it, it, I think Ro said it out well. There is so much at the moment that in terms Isn't of... Isn't there always, or is it just actually things have well, become worse in the last few years? I think they've become worse in the last few years. I think they're a new kind of worse. I mean, those all of us are probably too young in terms of when we were talking about the early years of the Cold War and the prospect, the likes of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and people thought the possibility of the world ending. And a lot of that, this is a totally different kind of crisis. But it's, it's also one that... Um, it's difficult to see the way out, but I suppose that's always what you have to hope is the resilience of human beings that have that has managed to again and again down through history come through. You have to hope that that's well at this stage that bar technology to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere is all we're left with. But what about new technology and social media and Twitter contributing to this sense of perma crisis role? Yeah, absolutely, and I think there is psychologically as human beings we're not meant to deal with the amount of information that we have access to. We're not meant to be able to uh, process and cope with the amount of disastrous news that we're hearing constantly. But also on a physiological level, the fact that we're constantly getting news alerts on our phone, the fact that we're using these apps like Twitter and Instagram that give us these doses of cortisol that kind of get our adrenaline pumping constantly throughout the day, it really has physiological and mental effects on people. And I have to say, I use Instagram far too much. But two years ago, I took what I thought was going to be a month off Twitter and I've never never looked back and I was quite online. Did you ever go back to it? No, I've never gone back to it and genuinely I thought I was going to struggle to take a month off and I literally just felt my body relax more and it's become, that's become such a barometer for me and of course we're going to be talking about Twitter later and how it's going to become even worse under new management Um, but I think the way in which we're interacting with social media, we've become addicted to it and that is the business model but it's designed to keep us stressed which keeps us buying things, which keeps us consuming news. Was it just the amount of information information you were consuming keeping your brain hyperactive that was the problem 
or was it the level of aggression and negativity that you often come out? It's only Matt, some parts I'm a of woman on the internet. What makes you think that I would get aggression and hostility? <laughs> um, yes, there was definitely a level of that. But I also found that people, I, I found I wasn't listening as much. I found I felt under pressure to have a take on things on, constantly. And even that was making me a worse human being, I think, because I had to come down on one side with something. Whereas my career, and you know, I've been in academia a long time, all of my training, all of my desire is to look at the complexity and nuance. And I found that that was really being stripped out of me. And I and I had to take a responsibility for I'm letting this happen to me. So that, and also there was such an influx of information, some brilliant people and brilliant writers who I really admire, but they were getting drowned out in the stressful news There stories. are lots of great people on social media that Super you would people. not have known and you get great ideas and comments from them. But you've had this thing, Michael Clifford, as well, haven't you, of negativity, stuff that you've written for the examiner and suddenly you get a pilon oh, of please. abuse for it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'd have to throw in, Matt, I've been guilty myself because the, the, the rule number one, you don't react and I have fallen down at that hurdle and amplified the pylons, pylons unfortunately at times. But overall, I mean, Ro, what she's saying, it's absolutely spot on. And personally, the line of work I'm in, journalism to keep up with everything if in the morning and I love doing it but if I was whisked away to a different line of work I would drop Twitter and hopefully I'd never go back there again because exactly what Ro was saying about the combination of the negativity the being switched on the whole thing that's on there it's just coming at you and uh, and there is an addictive quality to it there's absolutely no doubt about it I've gone through periods where I've dropped it down for a few weeks or a month and it's a fantastic uh, relief you know but um what do you if, think now with Elon Musk's in charge of it? Do you anticipate it becoming the Wild West even more so than it already I is? I think that could be the saviour of the likes of me because I think he'll drive it into the toilet completely. I think people are going to leave. I don't think, think so. No, I think people are going to leave. Yeah, I think Elon I mean, Musk yeah, yeah. doesn't understand why people are on Twitter. And I think, I mean, I have been loving following Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week because she has just been destroying Elon. She had a couple of tweets during the week saying, uh, LMAO at a billionaire earnestly trying to sell people on the idea that free speech is actually an eighth month dollar prescription plan. Uh, and also saying one guy's business plan for a $44 million over leveraged purchase is to run around and individually ask people for $8. Remember that the next time you question your qualifications. Um, But I think he doesn't understand why people enjoy Twitter and what has happened already in the past week. I think it was there was a 500% increase in people using the N-word just because because they wanted to test what would happen under Elon Musk's leadership. There's already been a huge increase in followers of accounts that are known to purvey disinformation and and, and release disinformation. Um, I think it's going to become an alt-right site. And and people who make it are going to Leave He's it. complaining that the sort of woke brigade are forcing advertisers to give but, up, but I don't think anyone was compelled to advertise. No, but on this, this, this is going to, to me. This is going to be his big problem, a major problem. The advertisers, it is, if it does become an alt right site, which I'd say is very likely, mm. the advertisers are not going to stick around. Not the big advertisers, and in the current model, they account for ninety percent of the revenue coming in there. Even if this blue tick thing, eight bucks a, a month or whatever, even if that works, you're talking peanuts. You're talking twenty or thirty million which is absolutely nothing in terms of what's required there. But I, I, I think this will ultimately, go, we could be totally wrong, it'll go down as one of the worst deals in terms but, of... But even the price that he paid, yeah. you know, the $54.20 per share, which was a joke about token, 
effectively now, as somebody pointed out today, has cost thousands of people their jobs because oh, now yeah. that he is yeah. so much overpaid, he has to actually cut the staff at Twitter. Although, on the other hand, it should be said, and we'll get to this video in Guider later, it's a consistently loss-making company, which would suggest that perhaps it did over-employ compared to what it should have been doing. Well, did it over-employ or was it just the nature of the platform? It's not as easy to advertise on it and to make money from advertising revenue there. And OK, they were slow, apparently, in innovating. But how much innovation can you do with a platform as narrow parameters as Twitter has? So, I mean, I just wonder, is it the type of place where you're not going to make a lot of money anyway? But how do you have a workforce, for example, and maintain content moderators and ensure that standards don't drop? I mean, it's very difficult to to think that that, that was possible. No, you have influence because here's a listener who says... I've been waiting for a sign to delete Twitter and literally just did it while listening now. Rose's point about how we are not built for all this info really hit home with me as an anxiety sufferer. I think I genuinely, and I, I have spoken openly about my own mental health struggles and that was a huge influence for me to leave Twitter as well because I noticed that my trauma responses were genuinely getting triggered by t- Twitter all the time. The fear I had of getting something wrong, the stress of constantly being under pressure to know everything that was going on, to phrase everything perfectly. If you have anxiety, Twitter ups at no end. And I also think there is so much infighting. I think there are people on Twitter and there are people in the world who are genuinely fighting for things that they feel are really, really important. But what it does is it turns in groups against each other rather than keeping us focused on the big issues and people who actually have power. And I contributed to that, absolutely. And I had to acknowledge that about myself and go, what are actually my values? Is it fighting with people who are my peers on Twitter or is it kind of creating social justice for all people? So Listener please wants take to know, well, Ask your guests, where on earth will the Twitter users go? Yeah, people have started heading places already this week and nobody seems to be very satisfied. I, I That's because go Twitter, back into my shell. <laughs> Twitter has consistently squashed any platform that has been seen, seen as competitor. It's the same as what Mark Zuckerberg has routinely done with social media platforms that have proposed any form of tiny challenged Facebook. He's just quashed them uh, either with really frivolous lawsuits just to scare them or has bought them out. And that's what's happened. But I think this is going to happen now that people are going to want a social platform that is responsible, that does target harassment, that does have social values and that isn't under the control of one billionaire. People forget Jack Dorsey only owned 2% of Twitter. He had to answer to a board, he had to answer to shareholders. Elon Musk now owns the entire thing. That's an incredibly different business model. Well, and he does one. actually have various financiers that he does have to repay. It's not like mm. he's entirely in control and there are people raising questions as to where some of that finance has actually come from as well, which parts of the world may be trying to stir things up. Well, That's well, one one element that in terms of where people go, whether you get another kind of global platform where everybody congregates the so-called town square or something is another issue, whether it could break down into niche areas and the problem then, if it is a problem, is that they just become echo chambers to a large extent so Yeah, one listener says, don't forget, a Saudi hedge fund now being the second biggest shareholder on Twitter. Well, shareholder or supplier of finance for the bonds, whatever. There does seem to be questions as to who is financially backing Elon Musk and all of this. We'll have more with Ian Guider on that later in the programme. But I suppose to get away from the sense of perma crisis, when we return in the week trending, we are going to be talking about the former British minister who's heading off to the jungle to eat kangaroo testicles. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM.
Uh, one listener says, we live perfectly well before Twitter and we can shot again if it all goes down the can. Good point. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Matt Hancock, former British government minister, um, who was forced to resign because he was caught on camera, wasn't he, having a bit of nooky? I mean, yeah, he was having a fair... And look, I don't want to judge people's individual circumstances, whatever, but the point was that he was lecturing people during COVID about staying in their own homes and staying in their own bubbles while thousands of people were dying. And just, I think him going into the jungle, it's just another sign of how ridiculous and unself-aware Britain has become and how chaotic their leadership has become, that he has decided his reputation is in tatters, he has nothing to gain now by being in government, so he's going to go to the jungle and going to do some bush trucker trials and the terrifying thing is I think it might work because unfortunately and Irish people are guilty of this as well I think the the whole furore of the nativity scene and the live animals this week has proven we love being distracted by silly stories against about distracted from real issues and I think this might work Matt Hancock is going to go into the jungle he's going to be put up for every bush trucker trial going he's going to then do something funny or relatable and people are going to get on side and they're going to overlook what he has done in the past and also we're not talking about the real issues that are going on in the British government and we get to those in a second but he's following in a tradition Margaret Thatcher's daughter Carol went there Boris Johnson's dad, Stanley, went to the jungle. Um, Penny God's Morden did Splash, which was a terrible reality well, TV Well, i tell you show. who else ended up in the jungle. Nadine Dorries was in the jungle once and yeah. she got suspended by the Tories for leaving during Parliament time and ended up coming back as, of all things, culture minister. <laughs> yeah, what I, what I thought was interesting was uh, apparently his, his decision was put down to when Rishi Sunak took over and he was greeting the various... Um, big knobs in, in, in the Conservative Party outside Downing Street and he goes along shaking hands and the second hand on the elbow and he studiously skipped Matt Hancock mm-hmm. and at that point apparently Matt decided okay I'm not going to be in the cabinet I might as well go on I'm a celebrity get me out of here It's either this or it's that it's one or the other and there's, there's a, brilliant, a brilliant line by um, um, Marina Hyde as there so often is when she was writing about it she said in terms of Matt's long but remorseless journey towards being Prime Minister this is probably his equivalent of Churchill's stint in the Second Boer War <laughs> I mean and that does sum up that sums up where Britain's at it sums up the, the, the quality or lack of quality politician Matt Hancock is one thing I wonder though Rose suggesting that I, I can well see why um, it, it could turn that he'd become very popular but he's carrying also the whole thing from Covid and the absolute disaster that was in British terms beyond even what a lot of European countries suffered and there'll be a lot of people there I think that'll still people who suffered people who've lost, who lost people during Covid all when he was when he was he health minister, minister and yeah. I, I, I just wonder whether that is so big even if he endears himself in particular ways can he get past that I'm just wondering as well the odious Swella Breverman and her mm. anti-immigrant campaign went up a notch this week whether she'd probably be furious that Matt Hancock knocked her off the front pages with her dreams of sending flights of immigrants to Rwanda. Or could it be that all that and even her immigration stunt is all just a way of 
distracting attention away from the real issues in British politics, which are cost of living issues and actually what Brexit has done to them, how Brexit has actually done enormous damage. And instead, they're falling back on the old tropes of let's blame the immigrants or let's send our politicians off to I'm a celebrity. Absolutely. And I think there was a tweet going around that I saw on Instagram because not on Twitter, but it was pointing out that um, so many of the broadsheets in the UK, if you think of The Guardian, if you think of The Telegraph, are behind paywalls, where so many of the tabloids are aren't. And I think you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about the public and the audience and the information they are exposed to. And of course outlets like the Daily Mail in the UK will constantly parrot back these stories about immigration and they will bury these stories about what the real issues are, the economic crisis. And so when Suella Braverman makes comments about immigrants, you know, the Manston Centre uh, in Kent, that lawsuit is coming up. It's just absolutely appalling how immigrants have been treated and the way she speaks about them. But she will get headlines with that which again buries these issues. She talks about invasions, Mm. fighting off invasions, incredibly inflammatory, disingenuous comments. And yet it gets an audience. Utterly, but then immigration underpinned Brexit to a large extent. Mm -hmm. On the face of it, they said it was an economic issue, that once they were freed from the shackles of Europe, they could spread their wings. Britannia rules the waves with trade rather than guns this time around. But it was perfectly obvious to everyone that the opposite was the case. Remember, as I think it's been pointed out, and this really illustrates it, 2016, the UK economy was 90% that of Germany's. Now it's less than 70%. And yesterday, the governor of the Bank of England said they're facing into the longest recession on record. What else can they do but deflect? And this was predicted as well. So let's blame it on the immigrants. This was predicted as well. Blame it on the immigrants. This is very, you know, it's a standard trope when the, the further but, right but Royce, you go. I reckon the majority of British people will not stand for this or don't want this, but yet they allow themselves almost to be dominated by this small clique. I think what's really scary is that this rhetoric of this anti-immigrant rhetoric, it's always used when countries are in crisis. So if you look at how Trump utilised it when they're in the midst of an economic crisis to say, oh, white working class people, the problem isn't me and my policy or the huge amount of money we give to the military or these economic decisions that have been made, the problem is immigrants. They're doing the same in Britain. People are poor, people are scared, people are really struggling economically. I also think um, people in Ireland need to be wary of this rhetoric. Like there's been a lot of talk about Ukrainian immigrants coming over here and the housing crisis and there's been this sense of well Irish people don't have houses Irish people don't have houses and that is a decision and a policy that our government has been enforcing for years and years Ireland also has a responsibility to Ukrainian immigrants and those two things can coexist so I think we can look at Britain and make very clear decisions about who we want to be when we are talking about immigration and when we're talking about refugees and making sure that we're addressing economic issues but we're also keeping our empathy open and being aware of our responsibility to everybody. As it happens we'll be going to Killarney on that issue after five o'clock but one other one I don't know whether we can put this into the perma crisis bracket but Gwyneth Paltrow who we've come back to on a number of occasions. Her Goop Christmas gift guide I believe you have been pouring over it eagerly One thing I'll say about Gwyneth Paltrow is I like a celebrity who doesn't pretend to be relatable. Gwyneth Paltrow has carved out a niche for herself as being an incredibly privileged, overly wealthy white woman who creates ridiculous lists and products and she has lent into that and I think that's far more authentic than someone like Kim Kardashian pretending she's just like me. So on Gwyneth Paltrow's (laughs) list, of course, we have the return of the vagina candle, which is uh, a bestseller now. How much does that cost? uh, The vagina candle is 
the most reasonable thing on the list, to be honest. Well, then, no, that's not true. There is an $18 tree Christmas tree ornament. In fairness, I've seen worse than Brown Thomas, so I'm going to give her that one. But she does have a $420 Gucci dog poo bag holder. So if you're white walking your Hold dog on, and you, you just clean you, up... You dispose of that, don't you? Does that mean one... You know, the holder, the holder for the bag. The it's In a fairness, status that's something symbol. I go for, definitely. It's a steal at $400. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I bring the dog out... You know, the only lead, the, the yoke has come off the lead for me, so I need to tie the lead on, or I need to tie the poo bags onto the lead. No, a holder like that is exactly what any man wants for his dog, like, you know? Everybody, if everyone's listening there, it can be a Kickstarter form for mixed Christmas presents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's also a tooth. $28,500 leather sex chair complete with restraints and stirrups and um, there's also a couple of vibrators right in the $100 mark I will say Gwyneth Paltrow never shies away from kind of centering women's pleasure and talking about sexuality but if you're going to price things at $28,000 and $28,500 you're only catering to a very specific woman's sexuality so maybe just bring it down give us some $10, $10 like Christmas uh, stocking yeah, if, you, if you hang on till after Christmas right I guarantee you there'll be a sale in that. Oh, super. Oh, thank yeah. God. Okay. Yeah. Super. Thank you very much, Michael Clifford and Ron McDermott for Who With Us for the Week Trending. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today,